There's been a lot going on in the last few weeks. Now, this podcast tries to be evergreen, which means that we aim to make each episode relevant for a little bit longer than the week we happen to record them. But sometimes a moment calls for a response. Because RCLI is an organization that equips Christian leaders in Richmond, we have to be able to have conversations about race. The events of the last several weeks have been weighty. There's an injustice in our midst. Maude Arbery was going for a jog and was murdered. George Floyd got a knee to his neck and he died. These are not isolated incidents. This is racism at work. It's systemic, it is evil, and it's opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So to my brothers and sisters of color, I know this isn't an easy time. So to you, I just say, I see you. We're with you. To everybody else, especially to white people, don't look away just because it's uncomfortable. We need repentance. We need reform. We need Jesus. There's more work to be done. Now, I don't have a tidy conclusion or you know an easy transition. I just couldn't sit silent at this moment. And a half-formed thought is better than saying nothing at all. So with that said, I'm going to switch gears here a little bit to set up the show. But leadership really does have consequences, right? A decision that you make or a team that you build can impact people's lives in very real, very practical ways. And here in Metro Richmond, particularly on the health front, Danny Avula is really keenly aware of that. Dr. Avula is the director of both the Richmond and the Henrico Health District. You've probably seen him on TV or on your news feed. He's everywhere right now. He's basically the, the face of public health in Metro Richmond. In our conversation, we talk some about COVID-19 in broad strokes, about where we are, what we can expect going forward. But we also hear some stories about how he got into public health. Uh, a little teaser, there's a story he tells that involves a urine test uh, when he was in middle school. I asked him some questions really focused on how he thinks about leadership. So what does it look like to lead through uncertainty? Or how does his Christian faith weave itself into the work that he's doing right now in this moment? Towards the end, there's a segment called How Worried Should I Be? where I ask him to weigh in on some different scenarios as we open back up. So some of these questions you may have had as you figure out how to navigate things, you know, how worried should I be about my kid going back to childcare? Or how worried should I be about having people over to my house or going to visit my parents? Later in the show, Jonathan Chan joins me for a segment I'm calling Nerd Corner. So if you're involved at a nonprofit or a church, and you want to just kind of nerd out a little bit, then this little segment is for you. Jonathan is a friend, and he's the executive director at Churchill Activities and Tutoring right here in Richmond. And he's done some research on historical trends in charitable giving. At the very end, there's a short little bonus clip where Jonathan and I talk basketball and leadership. You can check out the time codes in the show notes if you want to jump around a little bit. Like the rest of you, I did all of this from home. So there are a couple spots where the audio is a little pixelated, Nothing major, but that's not you when you're hearing that. All right, enough from me. Let's get into the show. I'm Blaine Lay, and you're listening to Vivid. Well, Danny Avula, hello and welcome. Um, how are you, sir? I'm good, Blaine. Nice yeah. to be with you. Thank you. It's good to see your face. You're working there in your in your office in the 
the headquarters of the, of the health district here in Richmond. Um, appreciate you making the time today. Um, my first question is, are you tired of all the questions that everybody's asking you? <laughs> you know, I, I think at the very beginning of this, um, I made it a priority, like a, a personal priority that, that having um, good information come from somebody with consistency and hopefully reliability was going to be important for our community. And so uh, it has become my new normal, <laughs> right? Yeah. That, that is almost a daily occurrence that we're doing um, interviews or, or, or media spots or whatever. So um, no, definitely not tired of it. I, I think it, it has served a lot of uh, a lot of people and I've just uh, been inundated with so many folks um, who I don't even know who have just written and said, hey, thank you for, for explaining this or being a voice around this. So um, I think it fills a need for our community in a, in a time where uh, that kind of transparency and, and clarity is needed. So. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, appreciate you making the time after hours. I know you're working long days and probably getting a little less sleep than you're used to. So thank you. Um, yeah. I wanted to, we'll talk about kind of the moment that we're in related to COVID-19, but I wanted to go back and hear a little bit about your story because um, correct me if I'm wrong, you were sort of at one point you were on a trajectory to go be sort of a, a practicing doctor. And at one point you made a jump over to focus on public health. Could you tell us a little bit about that story? Yeah, sure. Um, my, my trajectory to being a practicing doctor probably started back in middle school when, uh -huh. uh, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to know exactly how it came together, but I think like most uh, Indian kids growing up in this country, the, the parental influence on the career track and the path towards medicine is pretty real. Mm -hmm. uh, for us, it wasn't necessarily my brother and I, he's also a doc, um, but it, it, uh, it wasn't heavy handed. It wasn't like, hey, this is what you got to do. Uh, but I think it was carefully and brilliantly orchestrated by my parents. And right, so right. just in terms of, you know, the conversation and what the, our exposure was. So I, I very vividly remember back in middle school. In fact, uh, I was telling someone this story recently. When I was in seventh grade, my science project, which um, like many things in my life was done at the last minute, uh, was this absurd idea where I was in the grocery store and I came across these um, this urine test kit, right? Like these little strips that you would test urine for and to uh -huh. see if you have diabetes or, or anything else going on. Um, and so I went, I, I did a prevalence study. I, I went door to door in my neighborhood and asked people to give me urine samples and I tested their urine. Uh, and it was- but How do people react when you're, <laughs> like when you're going door to door? It was totally ridiculous, man. I, I mean, you know, I got about 15 people to do it. So I, there must've been some kind of charm there, but it was, I've been thinking back, I just like, how did my parents let me do that? How did anybody like not report me? It was totally ridiculous. That's amazing. And then fast forward, because weren't were you were, were you kind of going through residency, and at one point you had yeah. You know, so um, you know, so I, I started that path really early. Uh, went went to you know finished college, went to medical school, and it was my third year of med school uh, where we started our actual rotations. You know, you're rotating through your OB and your surgery, and, and you know, each specialty rotation. And and the first time that I was actually day in day out engaged in the clinical work, like actually seeing patients, um, and there was just this like nagging part of me that said this is not what I want to do every day um, and I you know so to some degree that was um, that was the 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 dissatisfaction of uh, not being able to address what I felt like were probably 
bigger picture and, and more uh, meaningful aspects of health. Um, I felt like so much of the healthcare system was oriented towards sickness, disease, and, and really like very far downstream in terms of trying to keep people healthy. But I think there was another part of me that was, and I didn't have language for it at the time, but really seeing um, health disparity, like seeing the fact that certain people uh, with certain skin colors from certain neighborhoods were much less likely to be healthy. And that whatever that brief interaction I had with them in the office was barely scratching the surface on trying to address uh, their health. And so that that, that began to grow. And, and so I, I did, I, my third year of med school, I, I actually contemplated like, is this, am I in the wrong place? Should I quit this and do something else? Um, and thankfully my wife said, you know what, you got a year left, let's stick this out and finish up uh, and then we'll figure out what to do. And, uh, and so what it forced me to do my fourth year of med school, I ended up pursuing a lot of, uh, I, I crafted my own curriculum basically. And we, my wife and I spent a month in Kenya uh, experiencing kind of international medicine uh, in, a, in a clinic in the slums of Nairobi. Um, we came back and I did a a rotation with uh, a healthcare system from more of an organizational leadership and, and uh, kind of the business of medicine. Um, I did a community health month where I was looking at uh, the, an, an asthma project that Bonzo Corps was running and really understanding these different elements of how a health system could actually improve the health of the community. And then I did a month at the state health department and finished with a month at the local health department. Um, and that is where it totally crystallized for me. And so this is what I want to do with the rest mm -hmm. of my life. I want to run a local health department. And, um, and I think for me, it was, it was the, the connection of uh, understanding that big picture. You know, how is it that, that culture and environment and behavior and policy all uh, factor together to, to define the health of a community? And how do you, how do you intervene? Um, and that was that, that kind of big system uh, or big picture look at things was really fascinating to me. Yeah, which I think, I mean, I think the beauty of how you approach your work sort of, as I understand it, that it's not, um, you're not, there's not a single lever that you just need to pull. You have to think about things in more nuanced, um, like complicated ways because a lot of these challenges are multivariable. And I think to your other point, you know, just about the, the disparities, particularly around race and class, it's not, those things aren't new. It's just revealing the sort of the fractures that we have. So I think that's, really thankful for the work you guys are doing and it's great to hear sort of your motivation behind it. Um, so yeah, thanks for that. There are actually like 102 different levers and they're all controlled by, by different people. And, and part of what, what I love about the work is that the problem solving and the coordination and really kind of the strategy is how do we align the interests of all of these different folks to invest time, energy, and resource to improve the health of different communities. And that it's, it's really difficult, but has been really, really rewarding over the years. Yeah, that's awesome. So I want to ask you some questions about the moment we're in, you know, you hear a lot about flattening the curve. As we think about that curve, you know, where, where are we on the curve? Um, how's Virginia doing in terms of testing? That's something we hear a lot about. And how, you know, how do we compare nationally? Yeah, well, I think the the curve is complicated because, you know, most diseases follow a, a fairly normalized bell curve and uh, there's never been a disease where we've done this much, uh, you know, like large scale intervention around, yeah. right? The fact that we've basically shut down society for two months um, has, has changed the direction of this disease. Like without a doubt, we have 
we have uh, avoided hospitalizations, we have protected people from dying, um, and, and all of the things we're trying to do to flatten the curve on the front end of this have worked, right? Like the, the fact that people are, are, are staying home, are washing their hands, are keeping their distance, um, has done what we needed it to do. Um, now the problem is that this disease is not going away anytime soon, right? We even two, three months in, um, very little has changed. We don't have a vaccine. We don't have any treatments that are um, effective for, for the masses. Um, we uh, don't know very much about whether once you've had exposure to this, are you actually immune to it? And if so, for how long, right? There's, right. there's, there's so much we don't know. Um, and, and, and frankly, I think at this point, uh, we have not had that many people who have actually had the disease. You know, if I had to guess at the prevalence of disease we've seen in our community, it's probably five to 10%. And that would be generous here in yeah. central Virginia. Mm -hmm. um, and so the scary part of that is that over the course of the year, while we still don't have a vaccine and may not have effective treatments, that a lot more people will get sick and, and likely many more people will die. Um, so the curve looks different because of what we've done. Uh, I think with each phase of reopening, we're going to see bumps in that curve. So, you know, we had this kind of slow curve that was flattened, but each phase is going to lead to a little, a little bump and, and it'll take time. I mean, my hope is that the things that we've learned how to do over the last couple of months, um, that those will not just go away as businesses open and as people have the opportunity to go out and, and buy things and see each other again, but that we will still adhere to, uh, you know, keeping that six foot distance and wearing a mask. Like that's going to be a really important part of reopening safely. So Testing is way better, you know, I think comparatively, we're, we're probably still in, in the bottom five or 10. Um, but, you know, the, the metric for me is, do we have enough testing to do the work we need to do? Do we have enough testing to, uh, when we identify a case, go and test the contacts to that case? Um, when we have a concern in a long-term care facility, do we have enough tests to be able to go in and do that uh, in high volume? And, and that has definitely come around. Um, we're doing community testing two to three days a week right now. Just today, we tested about 220 folks at a community testing event. Um, and so, I think Virginia has fixed a lot of its issues in terms of not having access to testing. A lot of that has been resolved. Uh, there's still room to grow. You know, we're working on how do we um, have our, our safety net, our free clinics and federally qualified health centers uh, build their capacity to be able to do testing because uh, while the health department has done a significant amount of that over the last three or four weeks, um, there are other things that we're going to need to pivot to. And, and that's been part of the story of this pandemic is, uh, is just the, the, the daily, almost daily introduction of a new crisis and the pivoting and, and development of a new skill set and a new response uh, of our team that has been really challenging, but kind of amazing to watch. Yeah. So talk a little bit about that, that pivoting, because there, I mean, at any given point in time, I think it's true generally about leadership, but I think especially now we're in a moment, like for you in particular, you know this far better than I do, but you're have, you're, you have to operate off of what you know, but you're also, as you look ahead, there's just a ton of uncertainty. As a leader, you, you've got to do the best you can with the data you've got. And even as you think about the resources that you have in-house to respond, uh, you know, none of us have a crystal ball. And I think you're adjusting day to day. How, like, how do you actually do that practically as you're trying to plan for the future and you're trying to use the finite funds, people, and time that you have on your team? Uh, well, I, I think personally, uh, 
I, I have a, a lot of um, capacity for chaos. Something about my personality that um, isn't necessarily phased by that. And, and in some ways, I, you know, like I've really been energized by yeah, the constancy of, of, you know, this new problem to solve and uh, this new direction we need to go. And we need to figure out how to stand up this thing in two days. Yeah. Um, like that has, that has been incredibly energizing, uh, mostly because our team is amazing. And just over the years, the folks that have come into this work alongside me, um, it's just, it's a, it's a beautiful spectrum of people some who are you know really good at thinking big picture and some who are really good at thinking through the oper operationalization of things um, and and watching that come together on a daily basis um, has just been like so so fun um, so I, I think that uh, part of that is is how I'm built but but a bigger part of it is uh, is what we've built right it's it's the people that have come together uh, and and like both unified in mission and and like figured out what they're good at um and and have like learned how to work really well together in the process it's been awesome i'm not going to go down this rabbit hole but are you a seven on the enneagram is that right <laughs> i am a strong seven yes okay that's that's a conversation for another day but um no i think that makes a ton of sense that even like talking about the connections and the relationships and that there's like i hear it in your voice and i'm seeing it in the way that you're smiling that you enjoy that. And I think it's probably a testament to the way that you've built your team and that you've created an environment where they can thrive in this moment that I imagine is probably the right amount of sort of autonomy, but also direction and, and, yeah, and everything in between. So as, a, as like a consummate optimist and someone who likes, you know, the new and like you're always pursuing opportunities in your role, you have to balance a reality, the reality of what's happening with hope. So, you know, when there's a press conference, Sometimes it's just like, this is the bad news that I have to share. But, you know, you also have to balance that with the right blend and making sure that you're giving people a sense of hope. So as a guy that's pretty optimistic, how do you do that well? Um, part of risk communication, which is a lot of what I'm doing these days, uh, is telling the truth and saying, you know, like, here's the situation. Here's what we know. Here's how we're responding. Um, and one of the fascinating things that I've seen over over the course of this pandemic is that, you know, the media is like really incisive with their questions and in, in many ways, like have pushed us to think about things that like maybe we didn't. Hmm. Um, and that's actually been really helpful. Um, and so I've I've gained a new appreciation for that interaction with the media. And I, and I think vice versa. I think, um, you know, they, they've appreciated having uh, the accessibility, but it's, it's been a, a very helpful two-way conversation uh, to make sure that our community knows what they need to know um, and that continues to keep us accountable and push us to think about things that, that the public is thinking about. And so it's, it's been really helpful. I want to ask, I mean, you have a number of stakeholders, right? Because you're, you know, you're, you are a state employee, you're, you know, report up to the state, like there are other directors like you around the state. You're also like your jurisdiction over both Richmond City and Henrico County. And so how do you navigate you're taking direct guidance from your boss, but then you also have stakeholder groups with Henrico and in the city that are responding to this differently. H how do you navigate that dance of, you know, you're, you're kind of taking orders and delivering them to people that are receiving mm -hmm. them just in different ways based on where they find themselves. Is that, what is that like? Like, how do you do that? I got to think that's challenging to navigate. 
Yeah, you could, no doubt. Yeah, it, you know what I mean? It's definitely been, uh, and, and uh, from a couple of different angles. One, from the angle that, you know, this pandemic has been so far reaching that uh, it, it's not something that public health can solve by itself, right? Like we have needed to rely on our sister agencies, on philanthropy, on the business community, on the nonprofit sector, because it, it impacts every arena of every person's life. Um, and so, you know, that has been, uh, yeah, it's just been an extraordinary response to see all of that come together. Um, so part of it, part of your, the answer to your question around how, how do I navigate, you know, being a state employee, um, having a, a particular defined role through through the role of the health department, um, and then, you know, kind of navigating the different philosophies of the, of the two localities in Richmond and Henrico. Um, and I, I think one of the things that's reassuring is that there's never been any concern about uh, intent, you know, both both of those localities want to do what's best and right for for their residents, and right. Um, right. and they serve really different constituents, right? The the demographics and and the the residents of the city and county um, are significantly different, and that and and that actually has borne out in the data too. When we were looking uh, last week at, at reopening in Henrico and, and being more cautious about that in Richmond, um, the data led that decision. The fact that the positivity rate trend was was clearly like plateauing and going down in, in Henrico, but skyrocketing up in Sydney yeah. um, led, led to some, you know, like, so I think to your question that part of our role is just providing good information and then helping our decision makers make good decisions based on that. And, and so that's what I've tried to do um, and always assume positive intent and know that like both localities and the state are all kind of looking at different information and having to make decisions on a different scale. Um, and and I, I have been encouraged in all three of those arenas that people are always trying to do the right thing. They just have different manage points. Yeah, that's great that's really helpful. Just assume, assume good intent and that, that can carry you a long way. Yeah. So we're a Christian organization and I know that you're, you are a person of faith. Um, personally, as a Christian, how does your faith weave itself into the work that you're doing? Um, a couple different ways. I mean, one, I have just been daily reminded of, uh, just how our God is a sustaining God, right? This has been a, an incredibly trying time for for all of us. Um, but I, in, in, from my lens of, of you know, working 15, 16 hour days and working through the weekends and not getting to be as present a husband and father as I would like to be and as my wife would like me to be. <laughs> um, no, she, I mean, you know, one, one of the graces has been just my wife's incredible support through all of this. I mean, just the fact that we've got five kids, we've got a lot going on in our house. Um, and she has day in, day out, just shouldered the load of family life and, um, and recognized that this is a pretty unique time for me and, and the particular role that I play in this. Um, and she's been incredibly supportive. So um, that's been one way, but, but just knowing that, uh, you know, so many people have reached out with texts and emails and handwritten notes saying, hey, I'm praying for you. Uh, like that has absolutely bolstered me, our team, my family. Uh, and I've just felt this like constant abiding presence of God's hand in, in the midst of this. Um, and I think the other way that I've, I've seen God at work is, is really just in, um, you know, through his common grace in people who are Christians and, and who aren't, right? Like the crisis has really uh, brought about 
extraordinary acts of generosity and kindness and seeing, you know, the, 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 the reality that people are made in the image of God and are, are pouring out their love and kindness and patience and generosity um, has, has really been inspiring to watch. Yeah. You should get your wife flowers when this thing's all said and done <laughs> or, or drop by on the way home. That's a, that's a tip from me to you. Um, uh, so I want to, uh, I'm going to, this is a new segment on the show. The segment's called how worried should I be? I have three questions. Uh, so I'm going to give you three scenarios and I, I will just want your advice on how worried I should be and how I should be thinking about each of these. So the first one word answers or number scale. No, or no. You- uh, <laughs> no, you can, uh, you can, you can just, you can give me sentences. You can, you can okay. work in prose. You're a man of words. Um, so my wife and I have a three-year-old. Uh, he's currently home with us, but at some point in the near future or distant future, his school is going to reopen. Um, how worried should I be about letting him go back to school? Like for all those people that have kids at home, like how, how do we think about that for the young ones? Yeah. Uh, it's so daycares have been opened for essential personnel. Uh, there are a lot of guidelines out there of how to try to do this safely. Um, we all know that it is impossible to like actually physically do physical distancing and mask wearing with three-year-olds. It's just right. not realistic. Um, so I, I have full trust that, that the daycares and schools themselves are doing their best. And I think it comes down to, you know, what, what are your potential exposures, right? So, um, you know, for your son uh, and for you and your wife as two young, healthy adults, um, the risk is probably fairly low. But if you guys are out and about or have elderly parents or are going to visit other people, um, that's where the risk starts to pile up. And so, you know, I've, I've very little concern for your three-year-olds, you know, young kids have really not seen much severe disease at all. We've, we've more recently seen the emergence of this multi-system inflammatory disorder, but, but the numbers are still really small. So yeah. uh, I, don't, I yeah. don't think I'd be concerned on behalf of the health of your son uh, or even of you and your wife, uh, but it's how far out does that ring of connectivity go? Yeah, that's great. That's encouraging. That, that, uh, <laughs> that helps me rest a little bit better tonight. Uh, so thank you. So that's the first one. Um, the second one is more of a social question. So um, if we want to pick up takeout and have another couple or another family over in our house or in our back porch, um, how worried should I be about that scenario? Like everything, I think there's safe ways to do it. Um, I, I think if you're going to be outside, that's much less risky than being inside. If you guys are going to be thoughtful about foregoing the hug uh, and, and maintaining the distance, then I, I think there are really safe ways to do that kind of thing. Um, and through all of this, we've yearned for that social connection and the desire to, to be with people who know us and love us. And, um, and so I, I wouldn't say don't do it. I would say do it with the adaptations that are going to keep you guys and them safe. Yeah, I've, 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 I got a good uh, elbow bump now. I can do that. <laughs> nice. It's a good move that I've adopted. And so and the last one is like, I haven't seen my parents in, I don't mm. remember how long. So my, my mom lives in Maryland with my stepdad. He's had some health issues. You know, they're both 70 plus. And then my older sister has cerebral palsy and she's in a wheelchair. So she's, mm. she's immunocompromised. My stepdad's just has some risks. And then I think purely by virtue of age, we're just trying to figure out when's the next time we can just go visit them for a weekend. And I, there, I know that there's not a perfect answer, but 
how worried should I be, you know, as we think about visiting folks that are a little more advanced in age or immunocompromised, like, how should I think about that? Yeah, well, that's definitely the most worrisome of the three scenarios that you've laid out here and and where I would just be the most careful. You know, I, I think we're looking at a year plus of uh, a scenario where we, we don't have a vaccine, we don't have effective treatment, all those things we talked about earlier. Um, and I think for the elderly and those with significant underlying conditions, it's going to be the hardest for them. Um, now, I think that their desire is a part of that equation, right? Like if your parents are saying, you know what? I'm, I'm good where I'm at. I'm willing to take the risk. We'd just love to see you and hug you again. That, that we should give the people the freedom to do that. I think it's where your behavior then has an impact on other people that we've got to be a lot more careful. Um, and so I, I often give the example of, you know, choosing to go to a grocery store and without a mask. Um, you know, you may not be worried about contracting COVID. You may be, you know, able to weather it pretty easily if you get it. But if you're at the grocery store uh, with Rhonda, who is a LPN at a nursing home, and and you unknowingly expose her, that has much more significant implications for a very vulnerable population. And so, uh, I think, you know, in the context of, of you and your parents' decision, you guys just need to talk through and what's the risk that they're willing to take. Um, but I think we need to be thoughtful about how connected we are to the rest of the world. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's helpful. This, this yeah. concludes the, this segment called um, How Worried I Should Be. Yeah, I mean, that's really helpful because I think those are, I mean, I, I am being a little bit lighthearted about it, but I think those are just very real decisions that people are sorting out right now. And even, you know, you look across the street and you're like, gosh, are they judging me? Like, am I doing this wrong? Are they doing it wrong? Like, am I judging them? I don't like... Um, and so I, yeah, the guidance is really helpful because I think it's something that a lot of folks are looking for right now. So, um, so thank you. The, the last question I have is more about putting this moment into context. So when you look back at this season, 10 years from now, 20 years from now down the road, what do you want to say about how you responded, you know, individually, but even us collectively in the macro sense, like how do you hope we will have responded? Mm. Um, I think two thoughts. One uh, is that there are few things like a pandemic to show you just how connected you are to everybody else. And uh, kind of resistance to people telling you what you can and can't do. And uh, the lens that we have being Americans thinking about uh, ourselves and our family, not necessarily ourselves in the context of a larger community. But COVID-19 has forced us to do that in a lot of ways. And so, I mean, one thing I hope is that we, we grow collectively from this time to recognize that, uh, you know, our choices, our behaviors actually do have implications for yeah. our neighbors yeah. and the parents of our neighbors and that, that nurse in a nursing home. And, and so, uh, yeah, I, I do hope that, that there's a greater sense of how, uh, how connected we all are. Um, I think and then it's the both like, the, like the freedom that we have, but also the responsibility. Cause we talk yeah. a lot about the freedom, but like, well, what am I responsible for Absolutely. as I think about myself as part of a whole? So sorry, you were going to say yeah, the second yeah, one. Yeah, it's fine. Um, yeah. So I think the second thought is that we have basically stopped our life as we knew it. 
and and we've done it because of this this severe threat um and by and large we've weathered it okay like we've figured out how to do it um and it's not over right like we're still very much at the beginning of of that figuring out but um i think it gives me hope to to think about as we think about the next crisis and there will be a next crisis and there's probably a bunch of crises that we're living through that we haven't done this for but that we have the capacity as a society to uh take extraordinary measures to to prevent something from happening or to fix something that's broken and so my hope is that we start to look at other things like uh you know the the 20-year life expectancy gap between West River Hills and Gilpin Court, and we stop and we say, you know, we can do extraordinary things to, to address these. So I, I think that one's a little more abstract because it is gonna require like a, a different way of, of thinking, but I hope that this experience with COVID-19 translates to that willingness, that, that desire to uh, focus resources, focus energy, um, and, and make pretty enormous sacrifices to address societal crises. Yeah. Well, I hope so too, Dr. Danny Vula. Thanks for your time, man. It was great, yeah. it was great to catch up with you. Thank you for the work that you're doing. There are so many people that are appreciative, not, well, certainly for you, but also just for the team and the medical yeah. professionals and the folks that are out there on the front lines and the essential workers. So um, thank you on behalf of all of us. There are a lot of folks praying for you and everybody out there. So keep up the good work, my friend. Thanks, Blaine. Great to be with you. Take yep. care. Thanks, Danny. Bye. That's all for the interview with Dr. Danny Avula. Up next, I sit down with Jonathan Chan for this edition of Nerd Corner. It's a little less than 15 minutes. We talk about what the drop in giving might look like, how organizations should be adapting to change, and the importance of leadership. So, yeah, without further ado, here's my conversation with Jonathan. Well, Jonathan Chan, it's good to see your face. Um, we're both at our in our respective homes. How are you guys doing? How are you holding up? Doing okay. You know, I feel like we passed the two-month mark here of lockdown and COVID life. And so that felt like a little bit of a wall to climb over just mentally, psychologically, spiritually. Yeah. Um, but feeling really great about a lot of the things that have been happening, even in the midst of all the needs and all the challenges that we're trying to confront here. Yeah. And how are you guys doing? You got a little guy at home. How, how old is your little boy? He is nine months tomorrow. Uh-huh. How's he doing? So he's doing great. Uh, he's happy. He's healthy. He's eating a lot. He is just in that kind of pre-crawling phase. Mm-hmm. So he's getting up a little bit, talking a lot. And so he's, he's fun to be around, but obviously it's challenging because whenever he's not asleep, he needs constant supervision. So we're juggling. My wife and I are both juggling our work and uh, taking care of him. Yeah, as many are. Well, thank you for joining us um, on the show today. So I wanted to ask you a couple questions about a, a Twitter thread. Uh, you're now a thought leader. Um, as, That's as, not <laughs> true. <laughs> but no, but I, seriously, like you're a research guy. You believe in data. You retrieve facts. Uh, you went to William & Mary. Um, you're just very curious, and you also retain facts in a way that I've always appreciated. Um, so you've been looking at some some recent trends in giving during downturns. And I wondered if you just walk us through briefly some of your research and what we can expect from a giving standpoint. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for saying all that, Blaine. 
you know, when all of this started and we began to see the economic impacts of the coronavirus and some of the measures that we had to take in order to combat it, I, I just immediately began to wonder how have past financial downturns impacted the nonprofit sector, philanthropic giving, charitable giving. Um, and so there's a few different data sources that I looked at. Um, you know, there's a lot of different data around national giving trends and some things have to be estimated. But what we were able to pull out was looking at when the economy declines, uh, when GDP, gross domestic product, the value of all goods and services goes down, how does giving go down compared to that? Does giving right. go down less? Does giving go down more? And so what I found was I just looked at the last two recessions, so 2001, the dot-com kind of mini recession, and then 08, the great recession. And what I just saw was that giving actually does decrease a lot faster than the rest of the economy. So in 2001, uh, GDP dropped by about half a percent and national giving dropped by about 3%. In 2008, GDP dropped by around 4%, and then giving dropped by about 15%. And, and in that case, it took a long time for giving to recover. So mm -hmm. we didn't really recover. Nationally, giving didn't get back to its uh, peak until 2014. So it took about seven years to recover. Right. So looking at that, um, what we just saw was that um, yeah, there's a lot of concern, I think, for, for us at, at Churchill Activities and Tutoring in this nonprofit sector and for nonprofits, churches, uh, and anybody kind of working in and around the charitable giving sector yeah. for what's happening today. And so, uh, so that's kind of the, the rearview mirror view. As you look at, yeah. um, none of us have a crystal ball, obviously, right? But as you estimate and you potentially look down the road, do you have a sense of what we can expect? Like you said, uh, nobody has a crystal ball. But when we look at what economists right now are saying about what's going to happen next, Congressional Budget Office, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, um, economists kind of from all three of these institutions are looking at 2020. And they're basically saying if we have what a lot of people have been talking about, a V-shaped recovery, where we've had this really sharp decline, but hopefully by the fall, things start to really open back up and the economy begins to grow again. If that happens over the course of the year, GDP, the economy, is going to decline by about 6%. We've had this really steep decline. We'll start to claw our way out of it in the fall. And so we'll get some of the way out of it, but not all the way out. And so that's where most of those estimates, uh, as, as of today, are falling, around a 6% drop in GDP. So that means, I think, that if the, if the trend from the past holds, particularly the trend from 2008, we're probably looking at a drop in charitable giving nationwide of around 20%. Um, that could be lower than that. It could be greater than that. There's a few different things that are different now than about 2008. Um, and again, that's all assuming that we have that V-shaped recovery. If it's different than that, if it's more of a swoosh or, or if we're kind of in a valley for a while, um, then we might see a much stronger decline in giving. And so as we've been thinking about it at chat, um, we've been running through a few different scenarios and preparing for a decline potentially even greater than 20% and having to come to groups with what's the impact on our students and families, what's the impact on our staff, how do we respond um, to that kind of contraction and the resources we have? Yeah, I think that's really smart. I'm not saying anything that you don't know, but I think so much of this moment is responding to the data and the facts that we have, but also saying, okay, what are the unknowns? What are the range of possibilities? How can we plan for different scenarios? 
and we'll know more in the days and weeks to come. And then we can adjust and sort of optimize along the way. That, that's not easy. I think it requires a different orientation and a different kind of planning. Yeah. If, if you're not used to it, uh, it can be a little bit of a shock. Is there any other advice that you have for organizations planning for change in this moment? Yeah, that's a great question. Obviously, every organization is different, serving different causes, different needs. And so that context is just going to be crucial um, to how, how, every, how each of us engages with this particular moment. Um, but I think a couple of the things that we've been working through and trying to think through that I think could be helpful for others is that, one, we're just trying to communicate a lot. Yeah. Um, and that really becomes so critical in the crisis response and then in those moments of transition or that season of transition that we're looking at over the next 12 to 18 months. And so just continuing uh, all throughout our organization with our students and families and then with donors, partners, friends, prayer supporters, just really trying to communicate as much as possible. So obviously for anybody who is as communication staff or as a communications person, you're probably all feeling that. I would yeah. say that to leaders who are potentially having to look at making tough choices, um, continue to prioritize communication over some other things because that's just so critical to maintaining trust and relationship, uh, which is ultimately, I think, the, the strongest, the most valuable capital that we can have. So that's one of the really key things. Um, in terms of, you know, we, we started this conversation around the financial and the fundraising piece. It's just really critical to, if you're in a fundraising role, or if that's a critical part of your organization, to not neglect that, prioritize mm -hmm. that, maintain it, keep, keep your staff, keep your capacity and lean into that. It, it is a nuanced conversation to be sure, because yeah. um, millions of Americans are, are now unemployed. Um, lots of people who have been invested in the stock market have seen their investments really decrease in value. Mm -hmm. And so we obviously can't be um, insensitive to that. At the same time, you know, fundraising from a Christian perspective ultimately is about proclaiming the mission that God has called us to and inviting other people into that with whatever they have. Um, that's how Henry Nouwen defines it. And so we can continue to do that. We can be sensitive and, and pastoral and nuanced and say to people, I know that your situation may have changed. Um, and we understand that. And we want to, we want to support you. We want to pray for you. We want to stay in relationship with you in spite of that. If you're still able to give, or if you feel called and motivated, and there are those people out there to give even more now in response to this crisis, here is what we're doing. And here's how you can help fulfill that mission and meet that need in the world through your giving. And so I, I think that's just crucial is don't, um, don't let the pitch go by, uh, rise to that moment, engage it. And it's, it's hard um, because it's, it's a tough, it's an emotionally laden conversation. Um, but that's one of the things that we're really trying to do uh, throughout this. Yeah, that's really good. And I think this pandemic will obviously impact different organizations differently, but there will obviously be an impact. And so the question is, how can you respond in a way that you can control? So I think with you all, given the, the inequities, this, is, this thing is just widening the gap and exposing some of those challenges. And I think you, you guys are leaning into this. For, for us, you know, we run a leadership program and try to equip leaders. And so 
I think to be candid, the first, you know, two weeks, I thought, gosh, I don't know that this is the number one thing on people's minds. But I think coming out of this moment, um, you know, a decade, two decades down the road, I think we're going to look back and say, man, when the coronavirus happened, that was a unique thing. That's, I don't know, once in a generation, once in a lifetime. And so I think there's going to be a moment for people that are following yeah. Christ to serve, to lead, to create, to cultivate. What does the new normal look like? Because there are going to be some old ways that are going to need to go away, but that also means there's going to be a void. And so how do we step in together, whether you're you know, uh, running a startup or trying to care for kids in the East End and equip them or training leaders that wherever we find ourselves, I think there's an opportunity here. Um, even while we're lamenting and suffering and trying to figure out how to get dinner on the table and buy groceries and be healthy to start to use our imaginations a little bit and look for what God's up to. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, to plug what you guys are doing, what RCLI is doing um, this moment, I think has really revealed uh, in a, in another way, in a fresh way, what happens when we don't have good leadership? Uh, What happens when, and just, just the need for leaders who are able to respond, who are able to be flexible, who are able to rise to the occasion, and that that really makes a difference, uh, and it's really critical for people's lives. The other thing is that with this crisis, a moment of crisis is such a formative moment for leaders. I was listening to, um, I was on a webinar uh, through, through the Murdoch Charitable Trust that Andy Crouch and Dave Blanchard were leading. And one of the things that uh, Andy talked about that he might have talked about in a couple other venues was that in the response to this crisis by public health officials like Dr. Fauci and others, you can see how an earlier crisis was really formative for them. And, and that was the HIV AIDS crisis. And those public health professionals, many of those physicians and doctors came of age during that moment, which was different, but equally confusing, yeah. uh, traumatizing, scary. Um, had an enormous human impact um, and that that crisis and the challenges and the missteps and the mistakes that were made and also the lessons that were learned have helped to shape their response to this um, and the ways in which some of those voices have have really tried to respond to this crisis. And so as we as leaders engage with this now, that's that's the opportunity is to learn, to adapt, to reevaluate, to be self-critical. Um, to find out what works and what doesn't and move forward from there. Well, Jonathan, thanks so much for your time. It was great talking to you today. I hope you guys stay healthy, stay safe, keep up the good work. Thanks. Really appreciate it, Blaine. Yeah, man. Thank you. Big thanks to Danny and Jonathan for making the time to connect. You can follow Jonathan on Twitter at Jonathan S. Chan, or you can find more about his organization at chatrichmond.org. Our music is by Brunswick. Chris Payne is a sleepless new dad, again. And Brian Broadway is a guy that never has a hair out of place. Okay, so last thing. You know when you go see a movie and the credits are rolling, and you're kind of walking out, but then there's this little bit at the very end after the credits, almost like... A little bonus clip. Well, what you're hearing right now, these are the credits, and I'm about to roll that bonus clip. So after we did Nerd Corner with Jonathan, we talked a little bit about basketball. So there was this Michael Jordan documentary that came out called The Last Dance. We both really enjoyed it. 
you get an insight into what drove Jordan. He was a guy that wanted to win at all costs. He would step on your throat to do it. Most people think Jordan is like the greatest basketball player. It's arguable, but general consensus is it's probably Jordan. But it got us thinking, okay, of the great NBA players, of those in the Hall of Fame, who were the players that were actually really remarkable off-court? People that were great players, but also great people. People that reflected something of, of God's goodness, whether they were Christians or not. So what follows is just a handful of minutes of that conversation. Here is your bonus clip. Enjoy. Yeah, that's that's the question I'm most interested in. You know, uh, there's a lot of definitions about who's the greatest basketball player, but I'm interested in who is the greatest person to play basketball at that level and even approach that conversation of greatness as a player. So like, you know, in the whole, let's like just look at the Hall of Fame if we just had to cut, you know, down to to a, to a specific number of people to use as our criteria. Like, who is the greatest human person? Who has contributed the most to human flourishing or exemplify what it means to be a great image bearer human doesn't necessarily have to be a Christian, but, but somebody who's just like fully flourishing, fully alive as a human being. Yeah. It's such an interesting question. I'm going to throw to you in a second because you have an idea on this one that I would love to hear you riff on. But so I, I, obviously there's a different era NBA wise where yeah. in Jordan's day, you were, well, at least Jordan specifically, this documentary just came out. There's a lot of people talking about him. Um, the era of players today are speaking out around issues of justice. You know, you think about Chris Paul, LeBron James, mm-hmm. and those guys that yep. LeBron is not afraid to use his platform to say, hey, we've got some injustices here that we need to address. Jordan never did that. Obviously, um, he's been getting some heat for it. You, who is your person? You have a guy that you think is amazing. Yeah, I mean, you know, there are two guys that you can come up with. You know, mo- I think, it, you know, you and I were texting about this. You know, the first person that, often pops to mind is David Robinson, the admiral. Uh-huh. Yeah. You know, he, he deferred his NBA career to, to finish out his enlistment in the Navy because he was at the Naval Academy. He founded a school. He's given lots of money to lots of causes. He, you know, exemplified for a lot of people as a Christian what it meant to be an athlete. You know, he, he took Tim Duncan under his wing, didn't feel threatened by him, yeah. and just helped to lay the foundation for what the Spurs became over 20-some years. The other person, though, that come to, came to mind for me was Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Uh-huh. Just because of just the diversity of things that he's been involved in, in terms of like human flourishing, creativity. Um, he, you know, obviously spiritually, he's an engaged person as somebody who converted to Islam. And so he has a philosophical, spiritual bent and introspective bent. He's been an activist. He's spoken out on a number of social issues. He's an author. Um, He's written a number of books. He's written about the arts. He's written about the Harlem Renaissance. He's written Sherlock Holmes fan fiction, <laughs> which is just crazy. It's absurd. Um, an actor, uh, a martial artist. He fought Bruce Lee in Bruce Lee's last movie, Game of Death. He's the final villain. And weren't you saying they had to slow down the fight scenes in that movie? Is that right? Yeah, it's the 70s. And so they didn't have, the technology wasn't readily available to do like high frame rate um, cinematography and so they moved bruce and kareem because uh, kareem was bruce's student uh they moved so fast when they were fighting that the cameras couldn't keep up it just it looked all blurry and so they had to basically the kareem and bruce had to slow themselves down to half speed in order to be comprehensible on camera that's amazing so these are the some of the names that you were sending me uh screenshots of his uh 
his writing. Um, one of them is called On the Shoulders of Giants, colon, My Journey Through the Harlem Renaissance. You wrote another one called Brothers in Arms, the epic story of the 70, 761st Tank Battalion, a story about World War II. I mean, what a, like the definition of a Renaissance man. Absolutely. Well, it's a fun conversation. Um, again, Jonathan Chan, thank you. Thanks, Wayne.